Um, we are in this uh, section in Ephesians 3, and as we enter uh, a new year, as we come into 2024, I love this chapter to start the year with because the Apostle Paul is specifically writing to the Ephesian Christians in this chapter to encourage them. Do you need encouragement at the beginning of the year? Do you need encouragement on a regular basis? I think we all do as the people of God. And there are times in in the writing of a letter, Paul will just kind of go off in such a way that you can't help but be deeply encouraged by what he's saying and writing. Romans 8 is one of those great chapters for me. And Ephesians 3 is designed for that as well. You'll see that Paul shifts gears. And his purpose is to help us to understand that no matter what's going on in the world around us and no matter what the circumstances are in which we find ourselves, God is greater than it all. And that in Jesus Christ, God's purpose cannot be thwarted. And so what I thought I would do, so this week we're going to look at verses 1 to 13, and then we'll go into Paul's prayer in verses 14 to the end of the chapter. And what I want you to see is Paul in the first 13 verses is going to give us his perspective on his imprisonment and why in the middle of his imprisonment he's filled with abundant hope. And then in next week in verse 14 and following, he's going to pray that we get it, that we really understand how much God is for us. But I'm going to jump ahead and ask you to go to the end of the chapter because this will give you a sense of what the Apostle Paul is intending to do. Look at verse 20. In verse 20 of chapter 3, Paul says, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think. I just want to stop there and let you meditate on that. Is that not good news? No matter how you're viewing life, no matter how you're viewing the church, no matter how you're viewing 2024, this is our God. You have not asked enough or imagined You have not out-imagined the goodness of God. He says, now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be the glory in Christ, in the church and in Christ. So he is able to do more than we ask or think, according to the power at work, where? Within us. Little church. That's you. That's us. He is able to do more than we could ever ask or imagine to the glory of his name. That's what we want. We want God to be glorified in and through our lives. Now, now this is important. Paul is reminding of this because where is he? He's in prison. And in their minds, the leader of the organization has been rounded up and imprisoned in Rome. And Paul's going, you got to see something here. God is not imprisoned. The gospel is not imprisoned. And the kingdom is not limited. So I don't want you to lose heart. So now what I want you to do is I want you to look at the last verse of the section we're reading today. Just one more time as uh, Johnny Johnny, Johnny Hatch just read that for us. But look at verse 13. Paul says, so I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is for your glory. Those are big words. I ask you not to lose heart. And I want to ask you the question this morning, are you losing heart? Let's be honest, we do. You wouldn't have to have this in the Bible if you don't lose heart. 
all kinds of things that come along. They're, they're, they're losing heart because their leader is in prison. Paul says, don't do that. Even this results in your glory. I'm at, God's at work. Um, my wife, Mary Ann, uh, and I have a good friend, a good friend, Stan and Jean Matson. and while we were away, a week and a half ago, Stan died. And uh, Stan is like a spiritual, you know Stan, um, Stan uh, is like a spiritual father to Mary, Mary Ann. And um, Mary Ann was able, about a month ago, because she knew Stan was beginning to fail, to fly out to Redlands, California, to see Stan. And she's really glad she went when she went, because Stan sort of rallied that weekend. And uh, Stan has got the gift of faith. Uh, he's he's, he's, uh, he's the most gregarious guy I've ever met. He would not leave this building without talking to every single one of you and knowing your story. That was just the, the nature of the way Stan was, super gregarious. I, I, gregarious. I can remember one time we, we were in England and we were um, uh, hiking up to a castle. So Stan and Jean and Marianne and I were going there. We get to this, these castle ruins and on the far side of the castle ruins is this couple on a blanket having an obviously romantic date. And you could just feel the magnetic pull in Stan. Gene is like grabbing his arm. Stan? Stan can't, couldn't stand to be in a place where he didn't know who it was and what their story was. And, of course, Gene lost the battle and Stan wandered off. And we wondered if we'd ever see him again. Um, but when Marianne went to Redlands about a month ago, Stan was rallying and she got Stan into his wheelchair and Stan just was a man of prayer. He always prayed for us. We would call at night on the phone, or they'd call us, and we played hearts on the phone while talking on each other's phones. The four of us would all be on our phones playing hearts. And we never talked on the phone, or we were never with Stan when we didn't pray. We always prayed. And so Marianne said when she got to Redlands and took Stan out, she took him to his prayer bench. He had a bench on his walk, and because he was weak and in the chair, he couldn't get out of the chair and uh, sit in his prayer bench, so he said, you sit here. And she said, then he prayed. And she said he was praying about the advancement of the kingdom of God and all that God had planned to do and all he was expecting to do. At the end of his life, he was full of faith, believing that God could do things that he was still dreaming of. He was, you know, Acts says when the Holy Spirit comes on the church, young men and old men will dream dreams. He was still at the end of his life dreaming dreams of the kingdom of God and pleading with God to do that. Boy, I want that, don't you? And that's what we have with Paul. Paul's in prison and he's pleading on behalf of the Christians that they might know the glory they have in Jesus Christ. That they might know the story that's unfolding and that his imprisonment is no impediment to the purposes of God in the world. And so what we have in this section we're studying today is the way Paul sees the kingdom of God. And I would tell you that when we're losing heart, we're losing focus. When we're losing heart, we're losing sight of what God is and what Christ has done and what God is up to. And Paul writes to the Ephesian Christians that they might have kingdom clarity, that they could see it the way it was meant to see, be seen in light of the crucified, risen, and reigning Christ. And we need that. And so that's what I want us to do. I want to walk through, and I just want to ask you the question, have you lost heart? Are you losing heart? Are you, uh, are you, are you filled with faith? And if you're not, listen to this. Uh, let it encourage you. 
May God strengthen and bless us as a church family at the beginning of the year with this perspective. So here's the first thing I want you to see about Paul's kingdom clarity. He sees the kingdom in the middle of his imprisonment. He has, first of all, clarity about his imprisonment. That's how the letter begins, or the chapter begins. Look what he says in verse 3. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles. For this reason. Just stop there. Paul is talking about, thinking about his imprisonment, and he's not detaching it from the story of what's going on. He says, I'm in prison for this reason. You go, what reason? Well, the reason that was given in chapter 2. In chapter 2, God has purposed in Jesus Christ to do what was unthinkable to the Jews, but also to the Gentiles. To take two very distinct people, two uh, peoples who saw themselves as less than friends, unclean, the Jews to the Gentiles, Remember the, the, the Jews had teaching and rabbinic sayings that if a Gentile had a baby, you weren't to help the baby lest there was another Gentile born into the world. That kind of toxic, religious, racial hostility that exists, Christ came in the world to overcome that. Just as, a, as an aside, Josh and Eric Oe had a baby yesterday. And so, thank God for uh, the little girl that was born to them. So keep them in prayer. It was a very rough pregnancy for the baby and for Erica. So keep them. But she's doing well, and Josh said the baby's beautiful. So let's just continue to pray for them. But let's look at this text of Scripture and go to chapter 2 and see what Paul is saying about the imprisonment, his understanding, the clarity he has about his imprisonment. In verse 14, he says of chapter 2, he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in the ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. That's an amazing thing. God in Christ, Christ has died on the cross, that by forgiving us, Jew and Gentile, he might make us, who could never be one, one people. One new man, he says. Look a little later in chapter 2, down at verse 19. So you're no longer strangers and aliens writing to the Ephesians, but your fellow citizens with the saints, members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. So God is building a temple, but the temple isn't made out of gold. It's not made out of stones. It's made out of Jews and Gentiles who have been forgiven through the blood of Jesus Christ. He says in verse 22, in him you are also being reconciled, being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. And so the Apostle Paul is saying, I'm in prison because my imprisonment accomplishes that task. And that was clear right from the beginning. Paul was going to be sent 
as an apostle to preach this good news, that whether you're a Jew or a Gentile, you can be reconciled to God and one another through the cross of Jesus Christ. And that did cause trouble for Paul. Everywhere he went, Paul would go into a town. Heard one preacher say the first thing Paul did when he went into town is he went looking for where the jail was because he knew he'd be there that night. I don't think that's true, but that's what often happened. Paul would go into a town and he would go to the, the, the local synagogue, begin to engage people, and people would come to Christ. They would see Scripture fulfilled and God had prophesied a Messiah would come. And then when the word began that this teacher had come, uh, this rabbi, one of Gamaliel's students, one of, this, one of these great religious leaders had come and was preaching this Christ that people had heard about, others came and began to chase him out. So Paul would leave the synagogue and go where? To the Gentiles. And so some places like Ephesus, a big sort of awakening would happen. They had all these idols that were made uh, unto the temple of Diana, Artemis. People began to get rid of their idols. And the people selling the idols didn't like it. And so Paul ends up being chased out of town. And so Paul gets thrown in prison because of the Jews. He gets thrown in prison because of the Gentiles. And Paul says, but that's what I was told I was signing up for. That was what I was called to. That is what my ministry was meant to be. And I was faithful. This isn't a surprise to me. This is what God has purposed for me. Paul also understood this, that not only to take the gospel to the Jews and Gentiles would cost him and put him in prison, Paul also realized by being in prison, the gospel would advance. This is the this is remarkable thing. The kingdom of God is not built the way we think. The kingdom of God gets built in prisons, in brokenness. I have a good friend uh, who uh, worked overseas and, uh, for the Canadian government and uh, when he was in Syria, he was in Damascus, Syria for a while, he was able to help get a building for a group of African refugees, uh, Su Sudanese refugees from South Sudan. And they were actually able to plant a church. Now, S Syria got turned upside down. He had a brother there, a, a Syrian brother in the Lord who was in a wheelchair, and that guy was in and out of prison all the time. In and out of prison all the time. He'd talk to this, this guy because he'd get thrown in jail for preaching the gospel. And he'd talk to his, his, his friend in, in Damascus. And his friend would go, um, he would ask him, well, how did it go? <laughs> he goes, well, I got to preach the gospel of this guy. And I got to preach the gospel of this guy. And I got to preach the gospel of this. That's what Paul said. And this is how Paul argues. This is what we read in Philippians. Paul argues in Philippians chapter 1, I'm in a Roman prison. Let me tell you this. It has resulted in me preaching the gospel to people I would never have preached before. The whole Praetorium Guard has heard the gospel. And he said, not only this, as we read this morning in our, in our responsive reading, not only this, but there are people now outside of prison preaching the gospel for whatever reason because they heard of what was going on inside prison. Paul says, this is God's strategy. That through my imprisonment, through my suffering, the gospel would move forward. Now I want you to notice something else. So Paul not only sees this as God's strategy, but he also recognizes that in the middle of this is God's sovereign power. Uh, it, it's, a, it's a little phrase, but I don't want you to miss it. Look at verse one. Paul says, for this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner for or a prisoner of who? Christ Jesus. 
That's Paul's thinking. Do you understand what he's saying there is? He's saying, I'm not the Roman government's prisoner. I'm Jesus Christ's prisoner. Jesus Christ owns me. Jesus Christ could have kept me out of prison. But Jesus Christ didn't want to keep me out of prison. Jesus wanted me preaching where people would say, wow, how can you believe that there? How can you believe that now? He wanted the power of Christ's resurrected uh, life in him to be demonstrated when he in weakness and in, in captivity was speaking like the freest man in the world. In the book of Acts, God sends in Damascus, he, there's this guy, Saul of Tarsus, who's converted. God says to Ananias, I want you to go heal his eyes. He can't see. He's blind. And this is how the text reads. Ananias says in Acts 9, 13 to 15, Lord, I've heard from many about this man, how much evil he's done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call in your name. But the Lord said to Ananias, go, for he's a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and the children of Israel. And I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. How is his calling? Ananias, he's going to be preaching to Jews. He's going to be preaching to Gentiles, and he's going to suffer a lot. That's Jesus calling on his life. Later on, near the end of the book of Acts, Paul is going to Jerusalem, and uh, everybody is like pleading that Paul wouldn't go, and then it, Paul does go, and he gets charged by the Jews saying he's bringing Gentiles, desecrating the temple. He's doing this. They make false accusations. So Paul is arrested. Well, Paul gets to preach to the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and he brings up the resurrection from the dead, which they disagreed on. It was a great opportunity to preach the gospel. And as a result of that, a riot kind of ensues, and they say, we better get him out of here, and they send him to Caesarea. And he gets to speak to Felix, the governor, and, and King Agrippa when he's there. But in between that trip, the Lord meets him. This is what Acts tells us in Acts 23, 11, the following night the Lord stood by him, said, take courage as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, you must also testify in Rome. Now how's Paul going to get to Rome? As a prisoner. He's being arrested in Caesarea and they're accusing him and Paul has the audacity to say, I appeal to Caesar. And he's going, I don't know if you want to do that. But you did it. So you're going. Now, Paul did that because the Lord said, you have to go there. Do you understand for Paul, that's God's strategy, and it's the Lord's purpose in his life that God would advance the gospel in a way that was surprising and shocking to most people in imprisonment and hardship and difficulty. The gospel advances. And friends, you and I need to understand that as well. Listen to Brian Chappell. He says, dying to self involves a willingness to sacrifice privilege. Paul's earthly privilege and prestige are constantly being whittled away by his calling. This is the calling of the Christian life. We are to be willing to embrace brokenness and weakness for the sake of the kingdom of God. We are to embrace lowliness. Just as an aside, I don't know how many of you know this, but Paul was first called Saul, named after a tall king, the first king of Israel. But Paul means little one. He had to become little. Rather than big Saul, he became little Paul. 
The question that we're being, uh, really being asked, Chapel writes, is not how we can become impressive as a church, but rather are we willing to become nothing for the sake of Jesus Christ. So, Here's what I think the text is saying to us. We we have to understand that God advances his kingdom through brokenness, through imprisonment, through hardship. We often think, okay, if we've got it all together and it's all going smooth, people will come to Christ. That's not usually how it works, folks. And as we go into 2024 and we pray over Waterbrook Church, this is what we need. We ought to be praying that God would put us in effective places for the gospel rather than easy places. And then when he does it, we ought not to lose heart. And so maybe I need to just ask you the question, are you in a hard place right now? Is Jesus still king? Can he work in our weakness and our brokenness? My dear friends, 2024 isn't necessarily going to be an easy year, but it is the year of our Lord Jesus Christ. And he will build his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Secondly, in terms of kingdom clarity, Paul had clarity about his calling. Look at verse 2. He says to them, assuming that you've heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I've written briefly. He mentioned that in chapter 1, that there was this mystery that had been made known to him, and the mystery was that God was going to save the Gentiles and the Jews through Jesus Christ, making one new man. He says, when you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it's now been revealed to his holy prophets and apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This is the mystery, that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Now, Paul stands at the juncture of a historic reality. He says, I am a steward. God's given me a stewardship. And the word that he uses there is oikonomia, which is a household steward. But it's translated in English, transliterated in English, economy. That's where we get the word economy from. Paul's living in a new economy. In the old economy, the mosaic economy, Paul, or John says this in John chapter 1, Moses taught us the law, but grace and truth are brought in Jesus Christ. This is a new economy. Old Testament law, you had to be holy, you had to have a relationship with God, and if you fell short, you were out. There was an anticipation of promises, but the new reality has come in Jesus Christ, grace and truth. You can, whether you're a Jew or a Gentile, whether you are righteous or unrighteous, because we're all unrighteous, Paul argues, you can be part of the new economy, the new church. And Paul says, I've been made a oikonomia, a steward. I have a stewardship given to me to preach that gospel and make it a reality. Now, I want you to just think about that for a moment. Stewardship means what? He's been given a responsibility under God. Paul is not making history. God is. Paul is simply to be faithful. 
in the preaching of the gospel. That's what he understands. Paul's responsibility is to be in the new economy as a steward of God, proclaiming the grace of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ and watch God do what nobody could imagine God doing, which is making one people out of bitter enemies who are not just enemies with each other, but they're enemies with God, either by their religion or their self-righteousness, or their sin, sorry. So that's why in Acts chapter 9, 15, God says to Ananias, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name to the Gentiles. That's Paul's stewardship. My job is to preach the gospel. Listen to Colossians 1, 24 and 29. Paul says, now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake and in my flesh I am filling up what's lacking in Christ's affliction for the sake of his body. I want you to stop there and say, what's missing in Christ's affliction? Isn't Christ's death on the cross a sufficient offering? An all-sufficient offering? Yes, it is. What's missing is not propitiation, the wrath of God being removed and, uh, and our sins being laid on him. What's missing is propagation, proclamation. That message now must be delivered to the world, the good news of the gospel. And Paul says, now I become that minister according to the stewardship, there's the same word, from God that was given to me to make the word of God fully known. The mystery hidden for ages and generations is now revealed to the saints. To them God chose. You understand this? This is God's time. This is the gospel time. This is God's purpose that's being unfolded. God chose. Now is the day of salvation. And Paul, you are going to tell them that if they come in Christ, they can come home. They can come to me. Our calling, friends, is not to make history. Our calling is to proclaim Christ faithfully. God will change history. But that's good news. It's a lot of responsibility if you think you've got to fix this world. It's an overwhelming reality if you've got to fix your family. Right? It's, a, it's, it's hard to go to your school and think, how in the world am I going to share the gospel with the people I go to school with or the teachers that I have or where I go to work? And the answer is, you do that, God does the work. It's the power of God. It's the purpose of God. History changed not because people were exceptional. It's because God used, exceptionally used, simple people who surrendered their lives and are faithful. Will you be one of those people in 2024? A steward to share gospel, to see what God will do. Might be the biggest year of our lives. Might be the biggest year of a church. He can do that. He can do that with this group of people. I'm not going to say you're not impressive, but there have been more impressive people, I think, historically. I don't know. You're a lovely group of people who have a very great Savior. And we've been called to be stewards of the gospel. And that's what we need to pray, that we would be faithful with the gospel, faithful with our neighbors, faithful with our family, bold and trusting God and asking God to do, which is impossible, to make dry bones live, to raise the dead, to say, Lazarus, come forth and watch them walk out of the grave into new life. That's what we're called to. Thirdly, we need to see Paul's clarity about his sufficiency. I didn't know how to write this one, but because Paul is really clear that he's not sufficient for the task. 
I want you, I want you to look at verse 7. He says, of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me by the working of his power. God did this. God changed me. God worked in me. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God, which, who created all things. So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Paul is using superlative language. The language is very extreme. And he's saying God is doing something that blows the socks off the angels through you and me. That's what he's doing. And, and he uses language that one describes himself as weak. I am the least of all the saints. And the word there in the Greek means the least of the least. He's using strong language to go, I'm the last guy you would think would be doing this. And Paul would regularly in his writing and in his ministry um, confess that this was something that was shocking to him that God would use such a one as him. Listen to his description of his ministry in 1 Corinthians. He says, now I'd remind you, this is at the beginning of chapter 15, he says, I remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, in which you're being saved. If you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain, I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. Christ Jesus died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in according with the scriptures, and then he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, then he appeared to 500 brothers at once, most of them are still alive, some have fallen asleep, then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me, I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church. But by the grace of God, I am what I am and his grace toward me was not in vain. God changed me by his grace. God saved me. God empowered me. And Paul will say this, I work harder than anybody else because if God would save me, man, I want to be used of God. I want God. And, and so here he is, I'm the least. Listen to 1 Timothy. Paul writes to Timothy and talks about his, Paul's conversion. He says, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord. Because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service, though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent. But I received mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief, and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. This saying is a trustworthy saying, worthy of full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am what? I am the least of all the least. I'm the least of all the apostles. I am the foremost of all sinners. Isn't that what the gospel tells you? It is a stunning thing that I'm a child of the king. It can only be attributed to Christ and his mercy. And Paul says, and God chose saving a sinner such as me to make me an instrument to announce that to others so that I might go out and tell people, he uses this word, the unsearchable riches of Christ. That's another superlative word. It's a unique word, doesn't show up very often. It means untraceable. It means you can't get to the bottom of it. And later on next week, we'll see in chapter three, Paul will say, I want you to know how much God loves you. I want you to know the height, the breadth, the width, the length of the love of God in Christ Jesus. 
you know, a few years ago, just a few years ago, they used to say there was 100 to 200 billion galaxies in the universe with 100 to 200 billion stars in each galaxy. Well, since the Hubble scope and the math that's been done by calculating a little area of the sky, NASA over the last little while has adjusted the math. Now NASA says, based on the mass needed to do that calculation, there are now two trillion galaxies. Now before NASA finishes its work, I want to tell you, they're probably wrong. <laughs> there is probably more. Why does God put that out there? So we might have a sense of what it means to be untraceable unmeasurable. That, that's what God has done for us in Christ. So when Paul looks at his sin, looks at, he can picture Stephen being stoned. The horrific things that he's seen, that he's done with his own life, with his own hands, in the name of God. He takes his eyes off of that and he looks at Jesus and says, as great as my sin, his grace is far deeper. You need to hear that. You need to hear that and own that because God can use you no matter how deep and dark your sin is and there's somebody else out there that needs to hear not that you're the hero of the story and that you're some superpower religious person. They need to hear that God will save someone who's made a royal mess more than they could dare to articulate, more than they could comprehend to even think about. That's what he's saying here. He says, this is what he says, God has done this in the church so that the angels would be blown away. He said down through the ages, the Old Testament, the prophets, they looked, Isaiah looked. He knew there was a light coming and that that light would, would, the nations would come to the light, but he didn't know how it was going down. But God in his eternal purposes didn't even tell the angels the whole story. It's as it's unfolding now through the church that the angels are leaning over the balcony and going, whoa, whoa. They're worshiping God for what he's doing through the church, what he's doing through you, what he's doing through Waterbrook, what he's doing through me. The angels in heaven are staggered. Luke says in Luke chapter 15 that every time one sinner repents, there is rejoicing, that more rejoicing than you can imagine in heaven. Wouldn't you like to see that? That's a testimony to God and his grace. You ever wondered why he chose you? He chose you because you're a pretty good display that God came into the world to save sinners. That's why he chose me. That's why he chose you. And so you and I need to be reminded in this text of Scripture that it's not our having it together that's necessary for the kingdom of God. It's having Christ and all that he's done. Here's the last thing. I want you to see about kingdom clarity. Paul sees in, articulates in this text that his strength, his power for this ministry doesn't come from within, but it comes from the access that he has to Jesus because when Jesus died and rose and ascended to heaven, he put a sign at the doorway, the gate place of heaven, and said, open 24-7, come in. Listen to what he says. Christ's commitment to this process 
he says in verse 11, this was according to the eternal purpose that he, was, that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. We have boldness and access with confidence. I could, Paul's sitting in prison. He says, if you think I'm trapped, you don't understand. I got 24-7 access into the very throne room of God from this position. Watch out, Rome. Watch out, world. I can walk in and God says, yes, my promises are yes and amen for the advancement of the gospel. Friends, are we accessing that? That's really the call of this text. We need to seek the face of God as a church. We need to go boldly into his presence. We have to believe that the power of the Spirit has been made available to the church for the advancement of the kingdom. So a month ago, Marianne was wheeling Stan to Stan's prayer bench. And uh, I, I have all these memories myself of being with Stan. We would go for these walks. He, was no, he knew I was Baptist, little R Reformed, whatever he thought I was. We would walk along together and Stan would look at me and go, do you believe in the Holy Spirit? <laughs> i go, yes, I believe in the Holy Spirit. <laughs> you know, because Stan's in his mind was, if you believe in the Holy Spirit, God can do anything as he pleases. And so uh, as we, Mary Ann was walking him, she said, she sat him down, or he was in her chair and she sat on the prayer bench and Stan began to pray. And then he stopped and he looked at her. And this is one of the sweetest things you could ever have somebody say to you as one of the last things they ever say to you. He looked at her and he said, I can see the Holy Spirit in your life. I'll tell you, my wife came home ready to go to war for Jesus, ready to go to work for the kingdom. Not because she felt adequate, but she knew from the word of her brother who was witnessing that you have all it takes if Christ is in you, the hope of glory. Can I say that to you, Waterbrook? If you have the Spirit of God, if you have Christ, look out world. Look out world. That's a kingdom clarity. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you that Paul stopped in the letter and said, I want you not to lose heart. And I do pray, dear God, for any who have lost heart here today, that you would give them heart, that you would strengthen their hearts, that you would increase their faith, that we would be praying as a church family with boldness and confidence that if God is for us, who can be against us? That the weak moments and the struggling moments and the difficult moments are the very moments Lord, where you love to make known the all-sufficiency, the unsearchable riches of Jesus. Show us Jesus again and make him shine brighter than he's ever shone through our church, we ask in Jesus' wonderful name. Amen. Thank you for joining us today. We hope you were able to seek, savor, and share the all-surpassing worth of Jesus Christ. If you'd like to find out more about our church, submit a prayer request, watch previous sermons, go to www.waterbrook.church. Have a blessed week.